Now, one of the girls who didn't want to be identified said that Steven had told her that he had killed someone. They were all at her friend's house, like drinking and just like partying. And out of nowhere, Steven said, I already murdered somebody. Now, the girl looked at him like, who did you murder? And he said, you don't have to worry about it. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. Welcome to episode 24. Today we're gonna be talking about what happened to 15 year old Leah Anderson. I've actually never heard about this case before and I'm shocked at that because it's unsolved. I definitely think that Leah's murder needs more coverage and it's just a really shocking case because when Leah was younger, her dad was actually murdered and then Leah was murdered. The family has just been through so much trauma and like I said, there really isn't much coverage on her case. I was able to get a lot of the information through a news source called CBC, so I will link them under my YouTube video. Thank you guys so much for being here and with that, let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Leah Anderson. Leah Kendra Anderson was born on November 24th, 1999 in a town called Thompson, which is in northern Manitoba, Canada. She was an indigenous woman that belonged to the Cree community. Now, the Cree community is one of the largest indigenous groups in North America. There are over 200,000 Cree people today living in communities throughout Canada and in parts of the northern United States, such as North Dakota and Montana. Leah was born to her parents, Sally Anderson and Gilbert Duke. She had two sisters, Tiffany, who was older, and Angel, who was younger than her. And she also had a brother, so there were four siblings in total. Now, the siblings were really close to each other, but unfortunately, they had a very difficult upbringing. In 2003, when Leah was only six years old, her father, Gilbert, was murdered. Details about his death have not been publicly revealed. All we know is that his killers were caught, they were convicted of manslaughter, and they were sentenced to life. Their father's death was really hard on the family, but it was especially hard on Sally. You know, she was really struggling to deal with the loss of her husband, and unfortunately, that led to her falling into addiction. Due to her addiction, she lost custody of Leah and of her three other siblings. The Welfare Department of Manitoba had to step in, and they placed all four siblings into the foster care system. From there, for the next two years, Leah and her siblings lived in 13 different foster homes which of course was so incredibly difficult for them. But luckily in 2005, when Leah was eight, their aunt Myra and their uncle Wayne gained custody of all four siblings. The siblings moved in with their aunt and uncle to a community called God's Lake Narrows, which is an indigenous reserve for God's Lake First Nation. And for those who don't know, an indigenous reserve is a tract of land set aside by the Canadian government for use by First Nations. That is the indigenous people who the land first belonged to. While some reserves are places where members of a First Nation live, other reserves are used by them for hunting and other activities. As for God's Lake Narrow, it was a very isolated town of only about 1,300 people, which is very tiny. I believe my high school had 1,500 people, so just imagine how tight-knit this community was. Everyone in this town belonged to the Creek community, and it was pretty secluded from the outside world. There weren't that many ways to get into town. You either had to fly in, or in the wintertime, you actually had to go in by an ice road. An ice road is basically what it sounds like. It's a huge 
human-made road that is made on frozen lakes and rivers. Now, these are really common in the northern part of Canada, and they connect the communities, making it easier to get supplies into town. I'll put a photo up here of what an ice road looks like if you guys are watching this on YouTube. If you're listening to this, you guys can Google it, and I'm sure there'll be like thousands of images of what this looks like. So yeah, if you wanted to get into God's Lake Narrows, you had to fly in or go through this ice road. As I mentioned, the population was 1,300, so it was a very small town, and everybody knew everybody. There were actually only 285 homes on the reserve. It was also a dry community, meaning that there was no alcohol allowed. However, according to members of the community, people did smuggle in alcohol through snowmobiles, and sometimes people would hold these like, you know, like secret parties at their house or like in an isolated area around town where people would get together and they would drink. So that's a little bit about the background of this town that Leah and her three siblings just moved to. Now, since they had been going through so many different foster homes throughout their childhood, landing in God's Lake felt kind of like a safe haven to Leah's older sister Tiffany. You know, this was like a tiny town where everyone knew everyone, there was a sense of trust in the community, and the siblings finally felt like they had a place where they could call home. Despite everything that Leah had gone through throughout her childhood, she was a very happy and vibrant teenage girl. Her aunt Myra says that Leah was just full of life and she wasn't shy. She was willing to do anything and she would put herself out there. Everyone says that she was so happy to finally be reunited with her family after going through the foster care system and that she wanted to fully take part in her Cree culture and heritage. So she was very active in her community and she was even chosen to become a youth chief. Leah also loved the arts and she was a singer and a dancer. Her plan after high school was to go to the University of Winnipeg and study art there. Now, there really wasn't much to do in this town. One of the main activities that everyone would do was skating at the local ice rink. And Leah got really into it. She absolutely loved ice skating and going to this local ice rink to meet up with her friends. Now, her friends and her sister say that she was also very trusting and she was the type of person to put other people's needs before her own. Her sister said that Leah, quote, didn't like to see anyone cry or, you know, be upset. She would do anything to make someone smile. Leah was just an absolutely beautiful girl that was so excited about her life and about her future. She was living with her family, she had a boyfriend named Max, and she had lots of friends. So everything just seemed to be going well. But unfortunately, all of those hopes and dreams that Leah had were suddenly taken away from her on Friday, January 4th, 2013. That day, 15-year-old Leah was on winter break from school and she was just enjoying her time off. At this time, the roads to God's Lake Narrows were actually closed, meaning that there was really no access into town that day. She had posted on Facebook the quote, shine bright like a diamond, which is a line from Rihanna's song Diamonds. So she must have been in a good mood that day and her family says that that post just like reflects what type of person Leah was, someone who was so happy and who truly did shine bright like a diamond. This was her last weekend in town before she had to go back back to school at the Frontier Collegiate Institute in Cranberry Portage, Manitoba. Now, this school is actually a boarding school, so throughout the semester, Leah had to live on campus. A little history on the school, it was formerly a residential school that opened in 1966, along with many other schools across Canada to westernize the indigenous population. However, residential schools in Canada had a very terrible history of abuse and just forceful conversion towards indigenous children, and they were actually banned in the late 1990s. But anyways, going 
going back to Leah, that day she planned to go meet up with her friends at the local ice rink and they were pretty much just going to go hang out there, you know, play some hockey and just skate around. As I mentioned, Leah absolutely loved to ice skate, so she was really excited about this plan. So she made the plans with her friends, but in the end, they actually canceled on her. However, this wasn't going to stop Leah from going to go have fun, so she told her friends that she was still going to go to the ice rink all by herself. If anyone still wanted to meet up with her at the ice rink later that night, she would be there. I mean, this was literally her last weekend before she had to head back to school, so she just wanted to enjoy her day off. At around 7.30 p.m. that night, Leah grabbed her bag, she packed her ice skates, and she said goodbye to her aunt, who reminded her to be home by her curfew. Leah said, yeah, and then she left the house and she started walking towards the ice rink. About 20 to 25 minutes later after Leah left the house and started walking towards the ice rink, one of her friends actually showed up to her house and knocked on the door. Leah's uncle Wayne opened up and the friend asked him, do you know where Leah is? And he said, you just missed her. She literally just left 20 minutes ago. You didn't see her on the way here? And the friend said no, that she didn't run into Leah at all during the path. The friend explained to Uncle Wayne and to the Aunt Myra that she had gone to the ice rink looking for Leah because they had plans to go hang out there, but that Leah had never shown up. I haven't been able to find if Leah's aunt and uncle were like freaking out at this time. You know, maybe they assumed that Leah had gone to like a friend's house or that maybe she was at the ice rink and that the friend had just missed her. I'm not sure, but at that moment, they weren't too worried. Now, later on, her boyfriend Max stopped by the house looking for Leah, but she wasn't home yet. He actually stopped by a few more times, including after her curfew, to see if she was home, but she wasn't. He said, quote, I kept going to her place, checking if she was there. They said she wasn't home, referring to her aunt and uncle. He also said, and that was unusual because she was always back by curfew. So Leah wasn't at the ice rink, she wasn't at home, she wasn't with her friends, and she wasn't with her boyfriend. So where was she? The night continued to progress, but Leah never made it home. Her family didn't immediately panic, you know, it was a very small community, as I've mentioned. So they thought that maybe she went to go hang out with a friend and she was spending the night there and just had forgotten to call her family to let them know. However, the next morning, she still didn't come home. She also hadn't called to let them know where she was, that she was going to be late or what she was doing. Leah had gone completely MIA since 7.30 p.m. the night before. At this point, the family is starting to feel very concerned, so her aunt and her uncle, along with other people from the community, started to search for Leah. They spent all of Saturday looking for any clues as to where she could have been or who she was with, but they didn't find anything. The next day on Sunday, it was snowing very hard, and again, there was still no sign of Leah. However, that all changed at around 10 o'clock in the morning. This is when a radio call came in stating that a body was found on the snowmobile trail. Leah's family actually heard this radio call and they were just absolutely terrified. I mean, at this point, it had been two days since Leah was last seen and now there was someone reporting saying that a body had been found. Of course, they were terrified. Now, according to some reports, police did a community headcount and they were able to see that Leah was the only person that wasn't accounted for. So because of that, they assumed that the body found was Leah. They brought the family down to the police station to show them some of the evidence that they had found and they showed the family a photo of a hat but Leah's family looked at this hat and they confirmed that this did not belong to Leah and they just like felt relief once they saw that you know they were thinking okay this isn't Leah's hat so that must mean that this isn't her body like Leah's probably still alive however police then showed them a photo of a boot in the snow 
And as soon as the family saw that photo, they knew that the boot belonged to Leah. Also found near her body was a bag with her ice skates, which her sister did confirm belonged to Leah. Now, the people that found her body thought that Leah must have been attacked by wolves or by a dog because her body was so disfigured. It just seemed like she had been attacked by animals. However, upon further investigation, detectives quickly realized that Leo was not attacked by an animal. In fact, she had been brutally beaten and murdered. It wasn't a dog that did this. It was a person. This just absolutely shocked the community because everyone knew each other in this town and the roads were closed that night. So that meant that the attacker had to be someone that they all knew. And again, since the roads were still closed, that meant that the killer was most likely still in town while detectives were investigating. Myra said that this was on her mind every single day. You know, the fact that someone in the community could have done this to Leah and she kept thinking, who did this? Do I know this person? Is he here? You know, it must have been so scary wondering, you know, is the killer in the room with us? An autopsy was done on Leah and it concluded that she had multiple defensive wounds on her hands, meaning that she fought her attacker and she fought with her life. Her exact cause of death has not been revealed, so we don't know if it was from a head injury or internal bleeding. We're not really sure what the murder weapon was or if there even was one. All we know is that she was beaten to death. It's also believed that her time of death was on January 4th, the night she disappeared just before 10 p.m. Now, detectives don't believe that she was actually murdered on this trail. They just believe that someone left her body there. And what's interesting is that this trail actually isn't part of the route that she would take to get to the ice rink. So how did she end up here? There was also a toxicology report done and it concluded that Leah had no drugs or alcohol in her system. Detectives went to go speak with Leah's friend, the one that she was supposed to meet at the ice rink. And she told detectives pretty much the same thing that she had told the aunt and the uncle, that she showed up to the ice rink, that she waited and waited, but that Leah never showed up. So police started asking around, you know, to people in the community to see if maybe they knew something about where Leah had been that night or you know, what had happened. And there were actually a couple of rumors about where she was that Friday night. The rumors were that Leah did make it to the ice rink that evening, but that she left early, which is why her friend missed her. A few people said that they actually saw her at a house party that night hosted by a woman named Josephine Chubb. Now, Josephine is Max's cousin. Remember, Max is Leah's boyfriend. So according to the rumors, Leah was at Josephine's house that night at a house party, but it was an all girls party. So when Max went to his cousin's house to look for Leah, he was denied entrance because they were like, oh, no boys allowed, only girls. And again, I just wanna reemphasize that this is just a rumor. Leah's family, her friends, and even a couple of the detectives have spoken about this rumor, but there really has been nothing to confirm that Leah was there. So this is just like, you know, word of mouth, but people have said in news articles and in interviews, like I saw her at this party. Now, when Josephine was asked about that night, she said that Leah was never at her house party and that she didn't even know her. All she knew was that Leah was a little girl, that's it. But a lot of people find it hard to believe that she didn't know who Leah was considering Leah was literally dating her cousin Max and it was a small town. On top of that, Max confirmed to detectives that he did go to Josephine's house that night looking for Leah and Josephine confirmed that Max showed up that night but that she didn't let him in. So this story is just like a little bit blurry. So yeah, a couple of people have said that they saw Leah at the party the night she was killed but again, this has not been like 100% confirmed. Now, going back to the investigation, Leah's family was trying to search for clues that could point them to the killer. They decided to go on Leah's Facebook 
Facebook to see if they could find anything. And that's when they saw that a man named Stephen Chubb messaged Leah on January 5th, the morning after she was killed. He said, quote, I hope you didn't tell on us. Now, if you notice, Stephen has the same last name as Max and as Josephine. Well, that's because they're all related. Stephen is Josephine's brother and Max's cousin. So literally, how does Josephine not know who Leah was when, you know, her brother was talking to her and her cousin? So Leah's family sees this message and they're just a little bit confused. They're wondering, what is he hoping Leah didn't tell? It just seemed very cryptic. And at the time, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, also known as the RCMP, which is Canada's version of the FBI, had arrived to God's Lake Narrows to investigate Leah's murder. So the family tells the RCMP about this message and police go question Stephen and they also question Max. The RCMP asked Stephen about this Facebook message he had sent Leah and he said that the message was about a secret relationship that him and Leah were having. He didn't want her family or his family to know about the secret relationship. So that's why he sent her that message. He also stated that their relationship had ended months before her death. Now, I'm not sure if there was like any type of overlap between Leah and Steven and Leah and Max. I don't know what the timeline is for that or if Max even knew about this relationship. If their relationship did end months before her death, why is he randomly messaging her that? You know, if the relationship was already done for some time now, there's no need to remind her to not tell people. Now, Stephen was brought in twice for questioning and he was also given a lie detector test, which he passed. Again, we know how unreliable those are and the creator of the polygraph test wishes that they wouldn't be taken so seriously. So even if Steven did pass the test, it doesn't mean he's innocent. Moving over to Max, he was also questioned by the RCMP and he was also given a polygraph test, which he passed. Investigators were able to get a warrant for Max's home. They searched the place, but they didn't find anything. After that, there really weren't any leads. Leah's family said that the RCMP was there for a few days thoroughly investigating the case, but then they just left. They just left everything behind the investigation and the family behind wondering, you know, what happened? Like, who is Leah's killer? A few months later, in April of 2013, the community got together to make a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in Leah's case. At first, everyone thought that this was going to be solved quickly, you know, because the roads were closed that night. So everyone assumed that the killer was in one of those 285 homes in this community. But at this point, it honestly seemed like police had no idea who could have possibly done this. 18 months after Leah's murder, the RCMP finally came back to God's Lake Narrows and they took DNA samples from several people in the community, mainly those who volunteered their DNA. And they also did take a swab of Steven's DNA. It was revealed that on Leah's clothing, investigators had been able to collect DNA that they established was from a male DNA profile. But Again, it didn't lead anywhere and the RCMP just left again. The RCMP said on their website that they had knocked on every door in the community and had originally had a few people of interest, but that they were, quote, cleared through various investigation techniques such as polygraph, DNA analysis, and corroborating statements confirming alibis. I don't know, to me, it just doesn't seem like they did enough. You know, the fact that they were only there for two days when Leah was first killed, and then they didn't come back for another 18 months just seems really shocking. Like, that could have given the killer enough time to get rid of evidence or get their story straight, you know, just 
there was just so much time wasted. And as we know, you know, polygraphs are unreliable. So it seems like the RCMP should know that too. And on top of that, an alibi is also a pretty easy thing to lie about. Now, a reporter named Connie Walker, who reports for the CBC, actually traveled to God's Lake Narrows to investigate Leah's death. She spent five days there speaking with people in the community about what they had heard in regards to the murder and just trying to get more information as to what happened. She said that on her last day in God's Lake, she met two women who heard a very shocking admission at a party a couple of months after Leah was killed. Now, one of the girls who didn't want to be identified said that Stephen, the guy I mentioned earlier who messaged Leah on Facebook, had told her that he had killed someone. They were all at her friend's house, like drinking and just like partying. And out of nowhere, Stephen said, I already murdered somebody. Now, the girl looked at him like, who did you murder? And he said, you don't have to worry about it. And it wasn't just this girl who heard Stephen confess to this. Leah's own cousin named Destiny also confirms the story. She was actually there when Stephen admitted this. She remembers him saying, I committed murder. I'm going away for a long time and I'm going to hell, which is shocking. I feel like that's not something you say as a joke. Like you don't just go around telling people that you murdered someone, that you're going away for a long time and that you're going to hell. And you also don't say that in front of the cousin of a murdered girl. It's just not okay. It could have been a joke, but it also could have been an admission. So the reporter, Connie, hears this from Destiny and from the other girl. And she actually tracks Steven down and she asks him about this. Remember, they all live in this small, tiny community and he's literally Josephine's brother. So she just goes to Josephine's house and she asks to speak to Steven. You can actually watch the video of this interrogation on YouTube of Connie confronting Steven. So I will link that under my YouTube channel. She confronts him about the statement that he said and he admitted to saying that, but he said that it was stupid and that he was just messing around. In the video, he looks nervous while answering this question. You know, he kind of laughs a bit when he admits that it was a joke, but still, I just don't understand how someone could joke about this, you know, something so serious. Connie then asked Steven, were you involved in Leah's death? And he calmly says, no. And then the interview ends. Now remember, investigators did take DNA samples from Steven and he told Connie that he hopes that the test results will clear his name. The mini documentary that Connie did was very interesting. You know, she speaks to Leah's sisters, to her aunt and to other people in the community. So I highly recommend that you guys watch it. That's pretty much the latest information I was able to find about Steven. He denies having anything to do with Leah's death and he claims that he was joking about killing someone. So I don't know, what do you guys think? Now, detectives believe that Leah was killed by someone from the reserve since the roads were closed that day. However, Leah's family is open to the idea that maybe it was someone from outside of the community. People would ride snowmobiles into the reserve to like sell alcohol. And considering that there was a party that night, it is possible that someone had come into town that night that didn't live there. Someone that wasn't well known to the rest of the community. Leah was also found on a snowmobile trail, suggesting that her body was left on their way out of town. So yeah, it is possible that this person didn't live in town, but that they were known to Leah. And remember, it snowed that morning, so a lot of evidence like snowmobile tracks would have been covered up by the snow. The RCMP came out and said that they have made significant advancements in the investigation. They've narrowed down, you know, the suspect list, and they've determined that the killer was known to Leah. 
So literally on their website, they're confirming that Leah did know her killer, which is even more disturbing. Was it someone who lived in town or was it someone who visited town once in a while to smuggle in alcohol that Leah had met before? It's all just so confusing. The RCMP said that they would come back to God's Lake Narrows every once in a while, you know, to keep the case alive. And they've also used social media posts to ask people for new leads. Leah's older sister, Tiffany, used to think that God's Lake Narrows was a safe haven but now she was afraid of this place. She no longer felt safe. She just felt like she couldn't trust anyone in the community. And she actually didn't go out by herself anymore. I just can't even imagine how the family must have been feeling at that time. You know, knowing that your sister's killer is possibly someone you know and possibly someone that still lives in your community now. It just must have been so frightening. Like any person you were talking to in town, could have been your sister's killer. Leah's sister also did interviews hoping to get Leah's case more attention and they talked about how her murder has affected them. Her younger sister Angel says that she's heard who some of the suspects are and that she feels like she needs to watch out for them. And when Angel sees these suspects in public, she watches how they react to her since she believes they must know that she's Leah's sister. The interview with Angel and Tiffany just really breaks your heart because you can just see how devastated Leah's family is. Leah and her siblings went through foster care together and I'm sure her older sister thought that she had to look out for all of them. So I can only imagine how hard her murder must have been, especially after they were all finally able to feel safe. You know, they were reunited after going through the foster care system and they were with their aunt and uncle and then this terrible thing had to happen to them so years went on with no updates but then in 2017 a 23 year old man from the community whose name has never been publicly revealed was arrested in connection to leah's case the rcmp called this arrest significant and this finally seemed like the big break that everyone was hoping for sergeant todd doyle of the rcmp's major crime service said Investigators have been working since January 6, 2013 to get justice for Leah. She was a young girl with a bright future, which was violently stolen from her. He added that the fight for justice was far from over, but that this was a good day. Now, the reason that they didn't release this man's name is because at the time he was arrested, but no charges had been filed against him yet. Officers did elaborate how they found this alleged killer. They said that they assembled a list of suspects and then they narrowed it down with the help of the community. Now, the news was so shocking to the community and it was also shocking to Leah's family. One of her aunts came forward and said that she was shocked in disbelief, but that it is what it is. She said, justice will be justice right? But then the day after he was arrested, this man was literally released without ever being charged. Now, the reason for his release has never been explained to the public, but investigators still say that he is a suspect. Now, people believe that they just didn't have enough evidence to actually charge him. You know, maybe they were hoping that once they arrested him, he would just like confess or something like that. But yeah, nothing ever came of this arrest. I can only imagine how frustrating that must have been for Leah's family. You know, they seemed so close to having justice for her, but then it was all taken away. And who this person is and why they're still a suspect is a mystery. The RCMP have said that they have conducted over 270 interviews in Leah's case and that there is currently an $11,000 reward being offered in her case. In 2015, Leah's sister Tiffany and another one of her aunts, Josie, organized an annual walk from God's Lake Narrows to Winnipeg 
to help raise awareness on her unsolved case. That same year, a group of nearly 40 people walked from Thompson to Winnipeg to call for a renewed inquiry into Canada's missing and murdered Indigenous women. In 2014, Tiffany actually gave birth to a daughter whom she named after her sister Leah. Now, the last time that the RCMP was in God's Lake Narrows was in 2020 which is just so heartbreaking to me. The fact that it's been three years since they've been back there to like search for answers and give this family closure is so upsetting because Leah deserves justice and it's just not right that so many years have gone by without answers. On January 6, 2023, the 10-year anniversary of Leah's murder, a group of community members gathered at the spot where Leah's body was found for a memorial walk in her memory. While some people walked, others followed behind in their cars, offering prayers and singing songs. The chief of God's Lake First Nation, Hubert Watt, said that they keep wanting to remind people, especially the RCMP, that this case is still unsolved. He said that the community would like to know if they are still active in the case or not because it just seems like the RCMP has forgotten all about Leah's murder. Her sister Tiffany was glad that Hubert spoke up and that the community was still thinking about Leah as much as she was. She admitted that losing Leah was so hard on her and her other two siblings because, you know, she was always a sunshine in the room and just losing a sibling is so incredibly hard. Tiffany also added that she had spoken to the police about her sister's death in 2022, but that she basically just received the same answers as always. She just wants the RCMP to return to God's Lake Narrows and continue their investigation. Manitoba RCMP's chief of staff, Chris Johnson, said that the investigation is still ongoing and that it's a difficult one so he can't really discuss the nuances of the investigation with the public. He also added that he had plans to speak to the community the weeks after Leah's death anniversary, but we're not sure if he ever followed through with that. He urges a perpetrator to think about the 10-year anniversary of Leah's murder as a chance of self-reflection and, you know, to take responsibility by coming forward. He said that it's easier to take the coward's route, but in doing so, the murderer will carry a heavy burden for the rest of their life. The investigators are still dedicated and motivated to bringing Leah justice. Now, I wish there was more that I could tell you guys. You know, I wish that her killer was found and that Leah did get justice. But unfortunately, that's not the case right now. So let's go over some unanswered questions that people have regarding Leah's death. One of the smaller details in this case that I couldn't find an answer to was if Leah had a cell phone. There were articles saying that she was texting her friends about the skating rink plans, but I wonder if those articles were actually referring to her messaging them on Facebook or, you know, something like that. Because there's literally no mention of Leah's text messages or her phone's location or when it was turned off or where it last pinged or anything like that. And this happened in 2013, so it wouldn't be uncommon for some someone Leah's age to have a cell phone. Also, her friends showing up to her house and to, you know, the parties looking for her also makes it seem like she didn't have a phone. And I feel like the phone could help a lot, you know, showing where it was last turned off or where it last pinged, you know, that could pinpoint where she was murdered. Now, another question is, where was Leah killed? It's believed that she was just left there on the trail. So where was she actually killed? Because a murder like that would have created a lot of blood. Also, if she was just left there, when did that happen? 
Was it the night that she was killed or just before the storm? Or was she actually killed there on the trail? And if she was, that means that she would have had to travel there with her killer when she was alive because again, this trail was not on the way to the ice rink. If this person did live in the community, how did no one see them coming home covered in blood or acting weird? Another odd thing is why does Josephine deny Leo was at the party when several other people have stated that she was there? I just wish there was more clarification on that or for a way for police to confirm this. I've also read online that even though these communities are isolated, people can still get to them by snowmobile and often do even when the roads are closed. So again, as I mentioned earlier, it's totally possible that someone who wasn't from this town did this. Now, another theory that some people have is that Leo was actually run over by a snowmobile, insisting that they do cause serious damage. And again, when she was found, people thought that she was like attacked by an animal because of how disfigured she was. So maybe a snowmobile like did run her over or, you know, hit her and that's how she got so injured. Now, something that was also interesting to me was that the friend that stopped by Leah's house shortly after she left for the arena, but they didn't somehow cross paths. Like, how does that work? Does that mean that Leah took a different route or that she actually wasn't even going to the ice rink in the first place? And what about the hat that was found next to Leah's body? Who did it belong to and why was it there? Like, have police put out flyers asking people to come forward if that's their hat? You know, I just feel like that might be a bigger piece of evidence than it seems. Often people in small-knit indigenous communities have a distrust of the police and they don't want to speak to them as they've experienced violence, abuse, and discrimination by them. Could it be that someone does know what actually went down, but that they're afraid to come out and speak about it? Interestingly, in 2018, there was another murder in this community where a community member was charged. RCMP arrested a 37-year-old man, Michael William Okamau, and they charged him with the murder of 22-year-old Crystal Andrews, who had gone missing in 2015 while heading back home from a Halloween party. Similar to Leah's, Crystal's body was found on a trail the next day, and it was determined that she died from serious assault. Leah's story is another frustrating and unfortunate case in a long list of cases that involve missing and murdered indigenous women. According to the Aboriginal Alert, indigenous women and girls were involved in two-thirds of the missing alerts in 2022. That's over 600 missing alerts in 12 months. 76 of those women and girls are still missing, and 15 of them were reported deceased. Here in the United States, indigenous women and girls are murdered 10 times higher than all other ethnicities. In fact, murder is the third leading cause of death for indigenous women, and more than four out of five indigenous women have experienced violence. More than half indigenous women experience sexual violence, that's 56.1%, and have been physically abused by their intimate partners, that's 55.5%. Now, less than half of indigenous women have been stalked in their lifetime, that's 48.8%. In 2018, an Associated Press investigation found 633 indigenous women made up 0.7% of open missing persons cases, despite being 0.4% of the U.S. population. According to the CDC's National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, American Indian and Alaskan Native women experienced the second highest rate of homicide in 2020. The Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, or MMIW, 
is a movement started by Native people and allies to raise awareness for loved ones who have been murdered or reported missing. February 14th is observed as Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's National Day of Action and Awareness, and May 5th is observed as the official MMIW Day. You can show your support and solidarity by wearing red on both of these days. Those statistics I just mentioned are so shocking and just sad. I mean, why are there so many of these cases still unsolved? Why isn't there more coverage on these cases? Like, not just on social media, but I also feel like in the news, I never really hear about missing or murdered Indigenous women. And that's just not right. You know, their stories need to be told and their cases need to be solved. Going back to Leah's case, there is a Facebook page called Justice for Leah Anderson, which I will link under my YouTube video. The page is very active. They post updates on the investigation and it's definitely a good way to show support to the family, you know, by following the page and interacting with their posts. It shows a family that people still care and that people are still looking for answers as well and are just supporting the family. If you have any information about this case, please contact the Winnipeg Detachment of the RCMP at 204-983-5420. Those who want to stay anonymous can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. In 2017, Leah's mother, Sally, passed away and she never got to find out what happened to her daughter or who killed her. Tiffany says that 10 years later, she has a message to her sister's killer. She said, if I could say something to that person, I would let them know that I already forgave them. I hope that they find peace with themselves after living with something like that. And with that, that is pretty much all the information I have for today's video. I will definitely keep you guys posted on the investigation. I encourage you guys to continue to share Leah's flyer, share her story, and keep spreading the word about her murder. It just needs to be solved and she needs justice. I will link some sources down below to where you guys can get more information about Leah's case and who you guys can contact if you have any information regarding it. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to 15-year-old Leah Anderson. If you're part of the hashtag Audio Familia, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. If you guys are going to go watch the video version later on my channel, make sure to leave me a comment letting me know that you're from the hashtag Audio Familia. If there's ever any other cases that you guys want me to cover, also leave me a comment under my YouTube video or you guys can send me a message on Instagram. But yeah, that's pretty much everything I have for today's video. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my YouTube channel, True Crime Jackie, on YouTube for full video episodes. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Bye, guys.